are live from America, the empire of lies. This is a show that brings you open debate, free speech, and the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So, Rod, how are you doing today? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. So, I, I gotta say, I called it yesterday. In the interview I did in the middle of the night with Mark Sabora, I said that everyone would be freaking out about Putin's new comments. Do you remember that, Rod? Remember I said it? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was an easy one, Lee. Yeah, and sure enough, everyone's... And, and lying about it, too. But Vladimir Putin didn't say anything weird. What he said was, if the West goes on, all in on attacking Russia, we reserve the option to use nukes. And he's not bluffing on that. And I think the West... Have you seen the absurd comments people are making? A lot of people are saying he's bluffing. Have you seen those? Yeah, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of uh, stupid comments out there, Lee. And I think these people, I don't, I really just don't get it. Uh, you know, this isn't a video game. You're talking about nuclear, uh, a country using nuclear uh, warheads to defend themselves. Uh, it's an existential threat, which means your survival. Um, so you know, I, 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 don't, I just don't get it. Right. And furthermore, there, someone pointed out an article by Ann Applebaum, a horrible neocon. Uh, she's part of the Integrity Initiative as well. But she had a piece, I believe, in The Atlantic, where she's saying victory for Ukraine equals Putin being out of power. And the West is very clear. They want Putin out of power. Right? That's their goal. So, by the way, do you know who doesn't want Putin out of power? The people of Russia. They like him. He's overwhelmingly popular, unlike all these Western leaders. But you talk about a threat. It's, it wouldn't be the only time we've done a coup on a country with a popular leader. We don't just do coups on countries See, countries with unpopular leaders tend to take care of it themselves. But with popular leaders, do you notice that's what we always do the coups on? Yeah, of course, Lee. That, that's uh, very democratic of us. You know, uh, you know the, uh, the shadow government uh, votes and overwhelmingly to take out any, uh, any leader that's popular. Uh, so, yeah, 100%. But we have a great show today. You put together a great show, Rod, as usual. The first guest to get us up to speed on some of the fallout, no nuclear pun there, uh, from Prune's speech and the uplays on the real update on the conflict in Ukraine. Scott Ritter will be with us in the first hour. In the second hour, the sage of... Pennsylvania. I don't know. That, I, I'm trying that for a nickname for Tom. But Tom Nichols, the great writer and author, and he does know a lot about Philly and Pennsylvania, right, Rod? Yeah, he was just at the art museum today earlier, so yeah. And I'm sure Fetterman's going to come up, right? 
Yeah, Lee, he was uh, he was all over the news yesterday for uh, walking back his uh, comments on second-degree murderers in prison. Yes. So even he has he occasionally is pushed back into sanity. But we'll talk about Fetterman and other things related to Pennsylvania and Philly. There's a gubernatorial race there too, right, Rod? Yeah, uh, current uh, the current uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, the Democrat lapdog, and uh, Doug Mastorino, who I really don't know much about, but uh, he's kind of a, a Trump back guy. And so that means he's going to have an uphill battle in Pennsylvania, but it's possible, right? Possible. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. The uh, the Democrats are all over the state are unpopular. Um, especially with crime and uh, you know the economy but it, it, so it is possible definitely so we'll be talking about that and more later but Rod what's the name of the show you're listening to the best show on the radio the backstory now I'm curious what do you think the big story is today because I'll be honest nothing's jumping out at me aside from the freak out about Putin and this a lot of stuff going on with the lead singer from Rune 5, Adam Levine. Are you aware of the Adam Levine controversy? Um, it's come around. I've seen it peripherally, Lee, and it seems to me just by the little I've seen, it's that uh, women like him and he likes women and he gets very sexual. Uh, he talks sexual to them in social on social media, uh, direct messaging. And, you know, I, I mean, isn't he a sex symbol? Uh, so I'm not. I'm, I'm a little confused. No, no. Yeah, and I'm not a big fan, but I'm not a hater either. I saw Adam Levine when I was working at Access Hollywood. He w- warmed up with his band for the Jay Leno show. And they were actually good. I enjoyed them watching him rehearse. And they were very good. But here's a good Adam Levine joke. Adam Levine, he went to the tattoo parlor and he said, I'd like all the tattoos, please. Because he's one of those guys where, look at him. He's one of those guys who seems to be not selective. He seems slutty for tattoos. Does that make sense, Rod? Right, exactly. He's got everyone you can possibly have. And all over his body. And then he's got something written and everything else. Well, whatever, you're right. Women seem to like that. And also, sexy done, sexual messages have come out on social media. And as someone else said on on Twitter today, no one looks good in their sex, right? Let's be honest. No one's going to sex with someone and it comes out on social media and everyone will go, that was great. Well done. Right? Am I, am I, am I correct, Rod? Uh, I'll agree with you to a point, Lee, because um, usually this is mostly against men, these you know, when these allegations come out and these messages come out. But if it, you know, and I'm not trying to create a divide, I'm just saying, but if you see a woman kind of talking in, you know, sexual manner to a man, it's kind of, you know, it's never really uh, uh, come up big in the media or, you know, made fun of that much. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't think of any. Well, yeah, because, you know, this is controversial in the age of calling people transphobic for anything. But, Men and women are different. Men and women approach issues, including sex, differently. They have different thoughts of it. And uh, that's a fact. 
And while it's not true about everybody in every circumstance, broadly, they approach things differently. I've heard lesbians say this about trans women being in women's spaces. They've said trans women, because they were men, are a little more uh, violent in the way, the way they joke. Does that make sense, Rod? No, that makes total sense, Lee. Exactly. It, that, I mean, that that just that, that just uh, makes the point we're talking about here. So, you know, yeah, you know, Adam Levine's in his DMs talking to women in a sexual manner because that's what they like. They like they think you know he's seen as a sex symbol. He's giving them what they want, and, and you know what I'm saying. Uh, leading up to the physical encounter, um, and and that's why one of the things it's about, all consensual though. But it's consensual. So if it's all consensual, what, what what's the point of it being brought up? You know what I'm saying? Right. And I don't see any point. And that also reminds me that you can see the difference between men and women, between gay couples and lesbian couples. Gay men generally are really promiscuous, albeit I'll say slutty. And I think you see that with George Michael, a good example. He was caught several times in public restrooms. And George Michael, I don't think, had to go. It was not financial. He could have afforded a hotel, right? And it was a... Yeah, it's the thrill. It's the thrill. It's a thrill. That's right. And few women on their own go, you won't be thrilling a public restroom. They're not so much thrilled by that as grossed out. And lesbian women, uh, which are, are the best kind, lesbian women are a lot more mon- you know, monogamous, and they, they deal with sexuality differently. And I think it shows, Camille Paglia said this, the gr- great writer, she said, it shows the difference between how men without women, to keep them in line, kind of, does that make sense, Rod? Act. Right. And I think one of the things that the transgender issue has kind of, by flat, by trying to pretend that men and women is just an arbitrary difference, they're cutting out some of those differences that are clearly true, broadly, about the sexes. Now, again, you'll find disparities. You'll find one person here or there. But by and large, those differences are real. And I think anybody who's an adult with any amount of experience knows that. Am I going out on a limb, Rod? Do you um, agree? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very obviously, um, you know, boys kind of horse around, like if you say horseplay and wrestle, while girls are more artsy and, you know what I'm saying, growing up, they're, you know, they're not as physical. I mean, it's just, it's just plain as day. You know, I take my daughter to the park and, you know, the boys are trying to jump all over each other and, you know, <laughs> jump on each other while they're going down the slide. And the right. girls, they're not, you know, they're not as risky, you know what I'm saying, to, to, to do that physical stuff. That's right. That's a good example. So, Rod, aside from the Admiral Levine thing, any other stories? Because really, that today is somewhat a slow news day. Putin made this speech. A lot of people are commenting on it and lying about it. Is there another big story I'm missing today? Aside from that gigantic fire at the oil refining plant, 
Right. And that is a big fire, but there's nothing to say much except it's a big fire. Oh, did you hear who's going to Dennis to cover the referendum? No. Wyatt Reed. Oh, that's cool. That's Funding cool. correspondent Wyatt Reed. I saw his plane ticket. We love having Wyatt on the show. I'm so glad we're going to have someone there covering this very important referendum. Now, do you expect any surprises in the referendum, Rod? Uh, no. I, I expect them to overwhelmingly vote to join the Russian Federation. and Because also it comes with that as protection. So uh, not not saying it's like an extortion. I'm just saying they they feel more safe being a part of Russia than than with Ukraine. That's just my prediction. And I'm I'm my prediction is White Reed will be on our show early next week talking about it because White Reed does a great job, and I'm excited for him to be going over there and a little jealous. I'll be honest. Would you go? Be honest, Rod. Would you go to Donetsk? Or would you be afraid to because of the missiles being lobbed at it by Ukraine? Um, I would not. I would. I would go. I would go. I would go for that. Yeah, I, I would go too. But I would worry somewhat because y- you see, they are not a full-blown attack, but they are attacking and killing people in Donetsk. You're seeing that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen that. There's another attack today. And apparently, French TV got footage of it. But also, also, uh, I'm hearing that uh, Aiden Aslan was released, which is a surprise. Oh, really? Aiden was what? Released. Really? And he can go back to England, or uh, I'm not sure about all that. But it seems like he's released from prison. Yeah, he might not want to go back to England. He's not going to be very popular over there. That's interesting. Well, let's continue to see. I'd still like to talk to him. So if we can possibly get Aiden Aslan on the show, that'd be great. Also, Lee, um, you know what? You know what's not the media doesn't want to touch only in the way they used to attack him. But Alex Jones and his trial is—he's now back in Connecticut in the second trial. First was Texas. Now he's in Connecticut uh, for the Sandy Hook. Uh, I, I mean, to me, it's, it's an attack on free speech. But anyway. Uh, that's that's also should should be a big story because the whole case is on free speech and the judge said he's over he's not allowed to say that he's innocent. Now this is an interesting. Uh, speaking of Alex Jones, my girlfriend was telling me we have a Barnes and Noble across the street, and we also have down the street a Target and across the street a Walmart. Guess which one carries Alex Jones' book, and guess which two don't. I'll, I'll say Barnes and Nobles carries it and uh, Target and the other one you mentioned, I just forgot, are Walmart, Wal- I think you said. yeah. Walmart. You'd think, and you're right, that's a good guess. You're exactly right. Barnes and Noble has the new Alex Jones book, The Great Reset, and Target and Walmart. Target doesn't surprise me, but Walmart should, don't you think? I, the only reason I, I, I know Barnes and Noble would sell it because I bought certain books like that from there. And also people aren't buying books as much. So, you know, if he's the number one bestseller, even though they want to, they don't want to label him that, you know, you should sell the book because, you know, you're bleeding a profit. That's so weird to me that the book is not in audiobook form yet. It's not on audible, 
because you'd think Alex could roll out of bed and do that. But it's not an audiobook yet. Have I talked about that with you? Yeah, we talked about that uh, with Jason when he was on Tuesday. And yeah, that, that is interesting that uh, he's not, uh, there's the, his voice or someone's voice isn't out there, you know, able to read the book for people who want to hear it on Audible. Well, it's got to be Alex's voice, as far as I'm concerned. If it's not Alex's voice, it's nothing. You don't need some English guy narrating his book to try to make it sound classier. I don't think, if if you want Alex Jones, you want the full Megillah. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, no. You, you want the whole thing, yeah, no, for sure, Lee. And I think, uh, funny enough, I would think that sometimes with him reading off the book, he would get frustrated and uh, you could hear it in his voice. Because, I mean, it, it is a frustrating topic to get across to people. Yeah, maybe he swore too much during the narration session or something. It's possible. But I'd pay more money for that. Would you buy the full curses version of the Alex Jones book, The Great Reset? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think that would probably be, that would even sell double the, the physical format of the book. So, yeah. They need one of those parental warning stickers that are on hip-hop album. Do hip-hop artists bother to do the sticker, the parental guidance sticker anymore? Because I remember back in the day, because I'm an OG, back in the day, those stickers were a sign of quality. And they were on every hip-hop album. But do modern artists even bother? Um, I, think, I think for legal purposes, I still see them on posters or on album covers i mean i haven't bought a physical album long time but um so yeah but i mean you i think you still see it even when like on your uh itunes stuff like that but uh lee oh lee i was gonna i'll send it to you after the show but uh there's a song there's a <laughs> margaret sanger is uh rolling in her grave in, in joy there's a song that some girls um, some female rappers have put out on how they are happy they can they can go get an abortion it's a rap song too. I'll, I'll send it to you. So, so is a pro-abortion rap song? Oh yeah, super, super. They're dancing in front of a plant. They're twerking in front of a Planned Parenthood. That's, really? Yeah. That's interesting. And how are they dressed? Uh, you know, very short shorts. You know what I'm saying? Interesting. Is that a promotion? Planned Parenthood's running. <laughs> I don't know, but I think it's an unintentional promotion uh, that these girls are doing. But you'll, you'll, I think you'll like it. Uh, as far as uh, it's, it might be catchy, but uh, you'll, you'll see. Now, do we have any clips, Rod? I don't have the list in front of me. Oh, yeah. Well, on this subject, we do have uh, Stacey Abrams just said yesterday that uh, there is no heartbeat of six-week uh, babies in gestation. She said it's made up by men. So we have a clip by that, of that. Well, let's hear medical advice from the future senator from georgia if she wins stacy abrams hit it there is no such thing as a heartbeat in six weeks it is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body away from them take controls of a woman's body as opposed to control of a fetus's body now, do, what do we know about that, Rod? You're an EMT. At what age does a fetus have a heartbeat? Right around six weeks, Lee. So what she's saying is a complete lie. It's just not scientifically sound. 
around six, seven weeks. You could hear that. Uh, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm just laughing that this woman is seriously considered as a governor candidate, and she's saying stuff like this. She's clearly anti-man. She hates men. They also have another ad pretty much chastising black men that they need to stand up and vote for Stacey Abrams. So she doesn't win. It's black men's fault, is what they're saying, in Georgia. Right. Now, do I do have another clip? I remember I sent something, but I'm not sure if you got to it. Uh, yeah, we have a clip of Biden at the UN, and um, I guess for Scott, we have uh, the Russian defense minister explaining why uh, the situation and uh, deployment of more troops. Okay, let's hear Biden at the UN because th- this will be fun. Joe Biden, hit it. Making irresponsible nuclear threats to use nuclear weapons. China is conducting an unprecedented, concerning nuclear buildup without any transparency. Despite our efforts to begin serious and sustained diplomacy, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea continues to blatantly violate U.N. sanctions. First off, for him to talk about the U.S. being willing to commit to diplomacy, they haven't so far. What is the U.S.'s position in, do you think, a diplomatic exchange, Rod? Um. I don't believe there is any many diplomatic exchange from America. It's pretty much you do what I say, you do what we say, or we'll try to run you over or get you out of office. Yeah, I was going to say, my way or the highway is our opening position and our final position. And you know, I love that they they like to stir up fears about nukes on every other country, but the U.S. is again. It should be pointed out, the only country to ever use nuclear weapons and on civilians to boot. There is no military value in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is is that right, Rod? Am I missing something here? No, no. Um, not at all, Lee. And people, people don't really know the history of that and, you know, the tests we've done and uh, we, don't, we also don't talk about the Korean War at all. I mean, it's almost like it didn't even happen as far as uh, mainstream media mentioning it. And how the U.S. has contributed to creating a situation where there's a separate North and South Korea. And luckily for us, we have a North Korea because it gives us a constant boogeyman. To, and, and China's being used the same way. Any of these countries would be insane not to have nuclear weapons in the light of the U.S., having nuclear weapons, and the British, and the way Liz Truss and many American politicians. I mentioned Senator Kennedy a few months ago saying we need to be prepared to use nukes against Russia. Right? He said that right out blatantly. I'm not hallucinating that, right, Rod? Yeah, from Louis- Senator from Louisiana. Um, yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, I see him... Sometimes, you know, I agree things what he says, you know, when he's questioning uh, nominees, Biden's nominees. But when it comes to something like Russia, he's just a complete idiot, I would say. And also, you talk about threatening nukes. That's why I call threatening nukes. And no, no one tried to put him down for that, including Biden and the Democrats. Did you notice that, Rod? The Democrats, it was a Republican. Republicans saying something, and the Democrats were silent on it, right? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, they, they totally agree with his stance, so of course they weren't going to say anything. So, 
I think we have Scott on now. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by the great Scott Ritter here on The Backstory. Backstory is back and broadcasting the truth to Washington, D.C., which needs it at 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joining us now is our good friend, the esteemed one of the voices to listen to about Ukraine and Russia, Scott Ritter. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Yourself? I'm doing well, and it's always an honor to have you on the show. You've been well? I've been very well. A little tired. There's too much news going on in the world today that Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times has taken hold. We're cursed. We live in interesting times. We're very, very cursed, yeah. Although it's a little slow today. I predicted yesterday we had the Putin speech at nine in the morning or so, at 10 or so, Moscow time, which was like one at night here. So I got to talk to Mark Sabalder about it right after Putin came out with his speech. And I predicted that everyone in the West would be lying about and freaking out about nukes because Putin used the word nukes. But we'll talk to you about that in one second. What was your general take on Putin's speech, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, I, I've been saying since May that uh the moment NATO and the United States started infusing tens of billions of dollars of military hardware into Ukraine, that this was a game-changing event. And, um, well, the game just changed. Uh, Putin called out NATO, said that uh, Russia is now um, in a existential conflict with the combined military power of NATO. And uh, he, when you change the game, Sometimes the game board changes, too, and Putin has dramatically changed the game board by seeking to uh, you know, conduct these referendums that are going to transform what is currently sovereign Ukraine territory uh, into sovereign Russian territory, thereby making any attack against this territory an attack on Russia. And uh, as Putin said, that, that, that brings about a whole level, a different level of Russian response up to including uh, the potential use of nuclear weapons. Now, I've been saying for a couple of days, I thought the recent Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, the SCO meeting, was significant because it, I, think, it, I think it showed, despite what Western media is saying, China and India, their leaders both said that they have a rock-solid link with Russia. A lot of the Western media tried to make it seem like there's a lot of difference between Russia and China and R Russia and India. But I heard the opposite. And I think you're going to see, even though the West obviously won't recognize these referendums, how do you think China and India and possibly Turkey will go in recognizing the referendums? Scott? Turkey. Turkey's already committed to not recognizing them. Uh, Erdogan is playing a very strange game where he's trying to keep 
one foot in the NATO camp, one foot in the Russian camp, and in doing so uh, is unable to decisively commit on major issues one way or another. So Turkey is is on the, I'm not going to recognize uh, the Donbass, just like Turkey has refused to recognize uh, Crimea. China and India are neutral. I mean, China's in a complicated situation because of its um, off-sided uh, you know, embrace of um, the invulnerability of sovereign borders. So China is traditionally disinclined to support uh, the kind of action that Russia has taken. But China has said that they respect Russia's national security interests and they are uh, fully aligned with Russia on confronting NATO uh, in Europe. So I, I think you're going to see from both China and India um, neutrality going forward. But, um, you know, China, look, President Xi just gave the green light to the Chinese military. He told them, start preparing for real war, meaning no more training, no more, you know, artificial stuff. Um, start preparing for the real deal because you're going into Taiwan. And uh, Xi wouldn't have made that, uh, that, that kind of statement without the rock-solid support of Russia. So it's reciprocal in nature. And then we also have to recognize that, you know, last month, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, Indian um, foreign minister, uh, external affairs minister, uh, gave a speech in Taiwan or Thailand where he said, you know, there can be no Asian century in the Pacific uh, without India and China fixing their border problems in the Himalayas. And I was curious because by saying that, he was quoting a former Chinese leader, uh, Deng, uh, who had spoken about the potential of uh, India and China dominating the Pacific in the coming century. And, and Deng said the same thing. Unless they work in concert, there can be none. Uh, India was opening the door for China to take a step in not only reconciling the border problems, but beginning to work in concert with India through the um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and bilaterally uh, to, to position themselves to challenge the United States in the Pacific. So we're looking at a world in transition where the United States is going to end up being the odd man out, and Russia is going to be definitely a player in this trans-Eurasian economic union, this, this Asian-Pacific uh, century where India and China dominate, uh, Russia is going to be a major factor in that. That's just a statement of fact. Now, Scott, you become one of the, I dare say, and you're aware of it, right? You're one of the voices to watch on Ukraine-Russia. You become one of the people that a lot of people look to for what's going on, for the truth. You, right? Well, I mean, that's what people tell me. I, I, I certainly haven't tried to position myself that way. I, I just, you know, I, I, like people like you call and say, hey, Scott, want to talk. And I have to respect the fact that you um, honored me by asking me to do that. So I talk. And if it just so happens that the words I say are found to be um, attractive to, uh, to people, well, hopefully because they're fact-based and uh, honestly held opinions, um, then that's the way it is. <laughs> Because the West, the Western media seems to go on to lie of the week. So you never predicted, for instance, that Putin's going to die of cancer next week. And the West, remember that? 
when the West was saying Putin's, he's had a couple of diseases, I think Parkinson's and cancer, and he seems fine. Well, he, uh, I tell you what, he, he should be a, a, a walking testament to uh, immunity because apparently he's suffered every ailment known to man and come yes. out uh, on the good side of it. So his blood should be a, a global treasure because it contains all of the, uh, the antibodies to anything that exists. They're building a pipeline of it into Germany, but we'll see if it gets shut down. So, Scott, give us the latest update on what's going on on the ground militarily in the Ukraine conflict. Well, we're definitely in a, from the Russian perspective, in a, what, a protracted period of pause. Um, the Russians, you know, after the the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkov that, that drove them out, whether they retreated or they were driven out, you know, people can have different opinions on that. But the bottom line is the Russians have consolidated their, their defenses and are in the process of repelling repeated Ukrainian attacks. Um, but the, the, the fact is the game has changed. The current force uh, structure that Russia has uh, brought to bear on this problem is insufficient to the task. Uh, the, the the Russian government finally has acknowledged this, and so they're in the process of a partial mobilization of at least three hundred thousand men uh, who will be brought in to secure the Russian borders, secure the Russian strategic depths in what will soon become Novorossiya, the the new Russian territories, and thereby freeing up approximately. Uh, 80 uh, to 120,000 combat troops that otherwise could not have served on the front lines because they had to do rear area security. Uh, this is going to you know, triple to quadruple uh, the combat power that Russia is going to be able to bring to bear on uh, you know, future combat operations against Ukraine. So I, I think that we're, you know, as long as it's going to take to get these 300,000 men, men mobilized, equipped, properly trained and deployed, it's going to take a period of months. You, you simply can't just send these guys, and no responsible leader would throw them into a combat-like environment. So I think we're in an operational pause that may extend through the winter um, or into the winter. And, and, and after that, Russia will, um, I, I believe, give Ukraine the opportunity to surrender. And if Ukraine does not avail itself of that opportunity, uh, Russia will complete the conquest of Novorossiya. Uh, I believe that it's going to take the uh, Odessa Oblast cutting Ukraine off from the sea, Kharkov Oblast seizing uh, valuable uh, territory there, and um, and, and you're going to see the diminishment of the Ukrainian state, and possibly, if they continue to resist with NATO assistance, the termination of the Ukrainian state. And what are the nature of these men? In other words, the people being mobilized in Russia, as I understand, even though they will need training, they're people with previous military experience, the equivalent of, uh, I think, the reserves, right? They, well, they are the Russian reserves. Um, the, the, uh, in fact, what's going on right now uh, is, is actually an annual exercise of the uh, reserve call-up that's done every year. Uh, but normally people show up, register, and then go home. What's happening now is they're showing up, and then they're being interviewed. And uh, Russia has, has brought, you know, has, has listed what they're looking for. They're looking for only combat veterans. So um, 
that tells you where their focus is. Uh, they're looking for riflemen, uh, basically infantrymen. Uh, they're looking for uh, senior enlisted uh, persons who also have combat arms, and they're looking for officers with combat arms. Um, so people are showing up at their uh, at the reserve centers, and if they after the interview, if they meet this criteria and they aren't excluded by a whole list of things such as you know having family members that are dependent upon you working in defense industry, things of that nature, uh, then you will be inducted. You will sign a contract uh, with the uh, with the army. You will be paid uh, the equivalent. I think that right now they're talking it's at three thousand four hundred dollars a month uh, for for the contract, and then um, you will be sent to a training center. You will be assigned to a reserve unit. You will help organize this unit, uh, turn it into an operational unit, and then you will be deployed uh, either along the Russian border with Ukraine or in the uh, territories of Novorossiya, the the Kherson, Zaporizhia, uh, the Donbass, to secure the rear area. These are not frontline combat troops. These troops are purely, uh, you know, will be tasked with border security and rear area security. The, the, the main combat that will be fought is going to be done by the troops that the, the combat troops that have already been committed to this. It's just that now they're going to be able to assemble the totality of their combat potential as opposed to having to leave two thirds of it behind protecting the rear area. Now, what's been the status of the professional military on the Ukrainian side? Because I understand Ukraine has suffered massive amounts of casualties. And I believe it's, is, am I right, that it's among their best trained troops, right? No, you're 100% correct. The, the regular Ukrainian force, uh, they had you know, in the vicinity of 200,000 of them, uh, when the war started, well-trained, well-equipped, well-motivated, hard fighters. Um, they're either all, uh, you know, uh, the majority of them are dead or wounded. Um, the, what's left now uh, is uh, newly conscripted personnel, territorial units, uh, things of that nature that are being trained. But the, the best and the brightest of the Ukrainian military have been wasted on the field of battle. Um, so, you know, this has been a horrible defeat for, for, for Ukraine. Nobody in the West is going to talk about this. Uh, you know, but the, the, the casualty figures uh, that, that Russia published, um, I believe, are actually low. Um, I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, they, you know, they're, they're talking, you know, over 60,000 Ukrainian dead. Um, they, they, they only talk about 40-some-odd thousand wounded, which is a strange, strange uh, ratio. Normally, uh, the wounded are two to three times greater than the number of dead. Uh, the fact that the Ukrainians have, you know, half again as many dead as they do wounded tells you that Ukraine has lost control of the battlefield. And what I mean by that is total breakdown in command and control and, um, and basic combat service support. They're not able to evacuate the badly wounded uh, personnel from the front line, so they're left to die. And that's what this number rectify, uh, reflects, uh, not just the, the fact that Ukraine has been decisively defeated, but the Ukrainians have lost control of the battlefield. They're abandoning their wounded on the battlefield. They're not evacuating them. These wounded are not being given the benefit of the golden hour that is so paramount in American military operations. You know, when you get hit bad, we need to get you off the battlefield, medevaced, and into surgery within an hour. And if you do that, a great percentage of the people who are badly wounded will survive. In Ukraine, that's done. You're badly wounded. You're dying. That's reflected. But the other thing is not reflected in that number. And if you study military history, uh, every war, every battle, 
there's a, a, a category called missing in action. Now, missing in action, you know, sometimes means desertion. Sometimes it means prisoners that aren't properly documented. But most of the time, it means bodies that have either been consumed by the battle, i.e., if you're in a tank and it gets hit and catches on fire, that body's gone. Um, and, you know, nobody has verified that, so you're missing. Or you get hit, you roll down a ravine, you get covered by leaves, and that's it. You're, you're, you've been returned to the clay, but, um, and they're not counting that body. These are significant numbers. It will number in, you know, the thousands, perhaps tens of thousands. So the number of Ukrainian dead are, is, is, is larger than uh, that which has been documented by the Russians. And I say documented. The Russians are very precise on this. Remember, they control the battlefield. They are picking up these bodies. They have the imagery of the casualties they've committed. These are very precise figures of, uh, of, of Ukrainian casualties. The Ukrainian army that existed on February 24th of this year no longer exists. Now, there's another recent move by Russia where they uh, bombed um, uh, or, or launched missiles at a dam and flooded an area. Now, I thought that was, for Russia so far in this conflict, an unusually bold and aggressive move. Can you talk about whether you agree with that and what that move accomplished for Russia? Yeah, we have to acknowledge that that was a move that was not um, in keeping with past Russian targeting. So it's an exception to the rule, not the rule. Yeah, that's that's what I mean by bold. Yeah, and, that, and so you have to ask yourself, why would Russia do this? And the answer is clear. Look, I believe Russia was uh, was caught on their back foot by this Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv. I believe that while Russia succeeded in uh, preserving the most precious resource any military has, which is its trained manpower, um, you know, it, it it was a rapid, unplanned withdrawal to a new defensive line, and in in, in combat. Uh, you're, you're at your most vulnerable in, uh, when, you, when you are carrying out such a transition. When that new defensive line is being put in, uh, units haven't tied into their units on the left and right. They don't have depth, uh, defense in depth. They don't have fire support built up. They're very vulnerable to a continued uh, attack by the enemy. And here, Ukraine had the Russians on the run. The Russians were trying to establish this new defensive line, uh, but viable Ukrainian forces were being assembled to attack the Russians while they were still not fully prepared. What was Russia to do? One answer is to take out this dam. By taking out this dam, Russia sent a surge of water in that, A, flooded a critical city, Kivalorod, which was a logistical hub and a, uh, a, a critical line of communication for the Ukrainians. Nothing's moving in that city right now because it's flooded. So they froze the Ukrainians in place, and then the surge of water continued down and swept away um, a score more of bridges, pontoon bridges that have been laid across the river that enabled the Ukrainians to supply and reinforce the, 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 the military force they were building up to attack the Russians. Now this force is isolated. It has no way of getting ammunition, fuel, food, anything. And the Russians started pounding at the submission. This was a purely military uh, move designed to freeze Ukraine's, the movement of Ukrainian forces, isolate a critical buildup of troops uh, that enabled the Russians, therefore, to destroy that buildup of troops while building up their defenses. So I think that's why Russia did it. It was an exception to the rule that was dictated by 
pure military reasons. Now, now Scott, as we approach the fall and winter, uh, is, how is this going to affect the situation on the battlefield for Russia and for Ukraine? And also, I've heard that some of the vehicles that Ukraine's been given by NATO are really not set to handle that kind of winter weather. They're, I've heard stuff, I could be totally wrong on this, that like the Bradleys are not great cold weather vehicles. How do you expect weather to affect things? Scott Ritter. Well, we'll start off with mud. General mud, the Rasputitsa, the mud season, um, is going to paralyze movement on the front. So both Russia and Ukraine are just going to be frozen in place. Uh, to attempt any meaningful military maneuver in, in mud of that nature is to invite disaster. So um, I, I think you're going to see, once the rains start falling in, in, in earnest, uh, that the, the, the front line is going to freeze in place until the cold comes in. And we saw this, I mean, historically, if you take a look at the German drive on Moscow in 1941, uh, the Germans are running full pell-mell uh, to, 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 to Moscow. The Russians barely have any troops left. They're throwing in everything just to try and stop them. And then the rains came, and the Germans ground to a halt. And that allowed the Russians time to build up their forces, et cetera, until the winter came, and then you could begin moving again. Um, this, this mud pause that's going to happen is actually to the benefit of Russia because it's going to occur as Russia is building up this 300,000-strong uh, reserve component. It will give Russia to, a time to build them up and deploy them um, without meaningful interference on the part of Ukraine so that once the cold weather comes in, Ukraine is going to be confronting a whole new reality, not just in terms of the politics of how to deal with Novaya Russia, but the fact that Russia now has deployed 300,000 troops, freed up all the rear area security troops, and now has about 200,000 combat-hardened troops that are able to come at the Ukrainians using uh, full-scale, unadulterated Russian offensive doctrine. That's something we haven't seen in this conflict so far uh, because of the, the restraints imposed by the special military operation. Um, the Russians are going to be unencumbered, and it's going to be the kind of conflict that Ukraine simply is not prepared to, to handle. You know, the, some of the equipment that Ukraine has, if it's operated by people who are trained to operate it in cold weather, have the ability to maintain it in cold weather, can function in cold weather. But if you turn it over to personnel who don't know how to properly maintain it, don't know how to do the care and maintenance, that equipment is going to break down. And I think we're, we're going to see a lot of this NATO equipment that's being provided to the Ukrainians uh, begin to break down, further eroding uh, the combat capability of an already severely diminished Ukrainian armed forces. Now, what did you make of all the talk of, of nukes in the Western media based on Putin's speech? It seems to me that no leader would say, we we're taking nukes off the table. If you attack us with all your forces, don't worry, we won't, won't use nukes. Am I right? Or is that no one does that, right, Scott? No one takes nukes off the table. Um, they should. I wish they would, but no one does. Uh, the fact is, nuclear weapons exist, and they are integrated into the nuclear posture of the nations that possess them. Russia has a nuclear posture that allows nuclear weapons, roughly speaking, to be used in one of two circumstances. The first is if a nuclear attack is launched against Russia, then Russia will respond with the full weight of its nuclear arsenal. Um, the second 
is if the national survival uh, of the, the survival of the Russian state is put at risk, either by a meaningful attack on Russia proper or an effort to decapitate the Russian leadership uh, during during war. If either one of those occur, then Russia, if by doctrine, is allowed to use nuclear weapons in response. You know what people when people focus on Putin's speech, but what they don't focus on is what happened before Putin's speech, where very senior officials in NATO, in Europe, even in the United States, began talking about the potential for the use of nuclear weapons in the Ukrainian conflict. Most of, most of these were predicated on an assumption that Russia would somehow use nuclear weapons in Ukraine because Russia was losing, of course, and Russia had its back up against the wall, and Russia had no option other than to use nuclear weapons. That's pure fantasy. That's not what's happening. That's not the case. But what it did do is now free up NATO to conceptually begin to talk about how it would use nuclear weapons against Russia in Ukraine. And the Russians listened to this and realized what was going on, because eventually you had a German official talk about, hey, forget you know, Russia using nukes first. Why don't we talk about us using nukes first? And that's why Putin brought this into his speech. He basically was saying that <clears throat> this is no longer you know, Ukrainian territory we're fighting over. This is about to become Mother Russia. And if NATO wants to continue supplying equipment to Ukraine with the intent of having Ukraine attack Mother Russia, then NATO becomes a combatant. And when you start attacking Mother Russia, you start threatening the security of the Russian homeland. And Putin said, we have the ability to respond to that. We have nuclear weapons. We are not bluffing. And he's not bluffing. And the quickest way to send the world to hell right now is for NATO not to believe the Russian president and to work with Ukraine uh, in a way that facilitated an attack designed to evict Russia from newly annexed territories. Uh, Ukraine and, and NATO can sit there and come up with all the intellectual academic arguments about the illegitimacy of the annexation and things like that. It doesn't matter. The reality is Russia views this territory as the motherland and Russia will make the decision whether or not to use nuclear weapons to defend the motherland. I was talking about a piece by Ann Applebaum, the neocon in, I think, the Atlantic. And one of the things she said was that Russia's plans failed here and that Russia is not going to restore the Soviet Union. And I thought that was a lie. I don't also put it. Have you seen any take on Putin's part that he's trying to restore the Soviet Union? No, uh, Putin is definitely not trying to restore the Soviet Union. What he is trying to do is protect the Russian nation. And the Russian nation exists beyond the borders of the Russian Federation. The Russian nation, as Putin has uh, declared in several speeches, uh, consists of people who may not be ethnic Russian, but who are linked to Russia through a common history, a common culture, a common language, a common religion. And, um, you know, it is the obligation of the Russian leader to protect the Russian nation. And in the case of Ukraine, the Russian nation has been put at risk because of the policies of a Ukrainian government that is adhering to the ideology of Stepan Bandera, a, a, a Nazi-affiliated Ukrainian ultranationalist who has the blood of tens of thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Poles, hundreds of thousands of Russians on his hands. 
The Ukrainian government calls him a national hero. They've elevated him to heroic status. They put statues up to him, and they have Ukrainian units that uh, use Nazi symbology because they view themselves an extension of Bandera, who is a Nazi ally. Um, you know, Russia is 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 not going to allow the Ukrainian government to threaten the Russian nation, including the population of what is ostensibly sovereign Ukrainian territory, but populated by people who can be classified as part of the Russian nation. So Putin is going to protect them. If Applebaum wants to call that the resurrection of the Soviet Union, it just shows their ignorance of Russian history and of the reality of what's taking place in the world today. And we're almost out of time, Scott. Great. Thanks for being on the show. And as always, a pleasure to talk to you. One final question for you. We have not yet really seen Russian attacks on Ukrainian command and control, particularly in Kiev. Uh, We've seen some slight attacks, but do you expect that we're going to see some attacks on Ukrainian command and control in the near future? Scott Ritter. I believe right now Russia continues to articulate this conflict as a special military operation, which will curtail, um, you know, Russian attacks on on targets such as that as, as you know the command and control centers, etc. But as Russia incorporates Novorossiya, these new territories, into the Russian homeland, um, and then Russia is called upon to defend the Russian homeland from continued Ukrainian attacks, then the gloves come off, and at that point in time. I think you're going to see Russia carrying out strikes that uh, are very parallel to the strategic air campaign that the United States conducted against Iraq, where virtually everything was fair game except, you know, civilian, uh, solely civilian targets. So, yes, the bunkers, the presidential palaces, the residences, uh, power grids, everything will be wiped off the face of the earth. So in the case of Zelensky, is Florida in jeopardy? Because we know he's got a big house there. But that's a joke, Scott. They're safe in Florida. So, Scott, great appearance as always. Thank you, Scott Ritter. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with more on The Backstory. Backstory. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the Backstory. Fantastic appearance by Scott Ritter. What do you think, Rod? I thought it was. I thought it was great. Lee, uh, I thought it was great analysis of what's happening and what's uh, what to expect in the coming weeks and months, especially when winter coming up, and definitely to hear uh, um, Scott lay out that Russia was just. Uh, Replying to NATO, talking about nukes, but they don't. The media doesn't talk about NATO. They're exempt. They're, uh, you know, they're angels. They're angels sent from heaven to protect the world from Russia. And a very realistic assessment, I think. A lot of people don't like to talk about things realistically, but Scott's very good at that. He'll say when he thinks Russia has an advantage, and when he thinks Russia has made a mistake. And I like that about him. And of course, we bring you 
our goal is nothing more than to bring you the truth on what's going on there because we don't want you to be surprised and they go we thought Russia was winning and they just surrendered Russia is firmly in control of the battlefield in Ukraine do you agree Rod? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that, Lee. And uh, like you said, uh, Scott and even Mark Sloboda, uh, they're critical of Russia when they feel they've done something that they don't agree with. Um, and, you know, it was interesting what Mark said yesterday with uh, the recording that, uh, you know, unfortunately, this is, this is a war, but a lot of these uh, veterans are going to, you know, might be unemployed. So this, you know, get them getting redeployed uh, for this uh <clears throat> mobilization is going to be money in the pocket they wouldn't have had. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was, I'm going to do something now before, well, let's do this and then I'll do it. Coming up this hour, the great Tom Nichols, we're talking about all things Pennsylvania. That's on the backstory. Now, I was listening to Fault Lines with Manel Chan and Jamal Thomas the other day, and they inspired me because Jamal's very good at pimping his own show. He, he often says, "Have you, you You may have heard him say this, if you like what we're putting down, like our show and give us a thumbs up on social media. Have you seen Jamal do that? Yeah, of course. I suck at that. So I'm trying to be better. So do me a favor. If you like the show, if you in fact like what Rod and I are putting down, like us on social media, but especially because I think this show, I think Sputnik as a whole, let me say this, I'll take some pride in the network run. The Sputnik channel, I would say, if you listen to any two or three shows, this one, and then pick one, I would listen to By Any Means Necessary, which is by far the most left radical show on Sputnik. Would you agree, Ron? Yeah. I think they would agree as well. Right. But I think listening to that, even if it's not your thing, listen once a week or so to see what people on the left are talking about. Does that make sense, Ron? It does. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say I heard uh, Jackie, I think it was yesterday or the day before, talking about The Woman King, the movie that that's out. And she was saying, you know. Yeah, you you know she was she was speaking to, to to black people. She was saying, you know, yeah, we gotta support these movies and all, but she likes movies that are factually true, and the Woman King's not factually true. Now, now, now we are, I would say, the most right wing show on Sputnik, but you know, ish. As I say, I'm a libertarian slash conservative, and I'm not really, you know, I'm not a MAGA head. I'm not full gung ho for Trump. But I'm not a Trump hater. And I would say most of the other shows are vaguely moderate left and middle of the road. Do you agree with that assessment, Rod? Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think people should listen because you get a wide variety of views. And the reason I say I think our show is good is you often get people like Ted Rawl, you know, or Daniel Czar, who are commies, right? And that's not an insult. They're communists, admitted communists, right, Rod? Correct. The Marxist voter considered himself on the left as well. Well, yeah, I think so. And his wife's a communist. And you know what Chris Rock said? If your wife's something, you, you know, I forget the, you know the routine I'm talking about, where he said, 
if your wife's a vegetarian, you're vegetarian. That line, remember, remember he talks about that? Yeah, I, I know you're talking about. Yeah, so it's also, if your wife's a communist, you're a communist. Yes, dear. The workers must control the means of production, dear. Good point. Does that make sense, Rod? I'm not having those conversations, and neither right. are you. But I would, I would be. Because it's easier than arguing. You can't argue all day. But uh, you've never heard me bicker with people because I want you to get a sense, a clear sense of what they believe, not my opinion of what they believe. And I'm good at doing my own opinion and saying what I think, but I want you to hear other people. So I would say this show, in one show, in two hours a day, provides you with a wide variety of views. And I think we do a good job at that. What do you think, Rod? Since you booked this show, you better like it. Not for sure, Lee. Um, even before I was working here, listening to the shows, it was like uh, when you were on fault lines, you'd have different uh, guests. You and Garland would have different guests and different viewpoints, and it was interesting to hear to hear that. Um, and it op- it opens your horizons and uh, you know lets you you know cross cross the lines that uh, you know. So, uh, sometimes have us divided, and uh, we find common ground. And uh, by the way, if anyone's a long-time listener, you know Garland and I had some problems towards the end of fall lines. But I will say that Garland's been doing very good work, and he was recently featured on the Duran. Did you see that, Rod? Uh, I think I've seen him there a couple times, so yeah. So a big congratulations. I know Garland was a fan of the Duran, so... It's great to see Garland on there. And he has been doing a lot of good work on his show, The Critical Hour, and elsewhere. He also has a big Twitter following. Have you seen that? He gets a lot of reaction from his tweets. Yes, yeah. Because I think there's a a bigger community of people who are... I don't see much of a community of people who were Trump supporters and now are iffy on Trump. Because they don't think he accomplished a lot of the stuff he set out to. Not Trump haters, but the position I take and a lot of our listeners seem to take. But there's a bigger community of people who were Bernie Democrats, right? And were basically thrown out of the party and are still basically Bernie people. And I would say Greenwald and Max Blumenthal and Jimmy Dore. And Garland all fit in that category. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say the uh, the glimmer of Bernie and what what he stood for. But Bernie the man is a coward, and he let all the people down. And uh, let's not forget when he went and campaigned for Hillary Clinton and said, "Oh no!" But even before that, let's go before that uh, when he was debating her, and he said, uh, "Let's forget about the damn emails." Right, and and the, the, they're still progressive. Democrats. In other words, they take the same position on health care and I think on immigration. I think if if I push by push, I mean, ask a blunt question. I still think they're not on a sane side about immigration progressives. Does that strike you as correct, Rod, that most progressives are actually insane, but they've learned to shut their mouths about immigration? Uh, yeah, I still believe uh, 
that they have a more liberal in the sense of let allow more people into this country unfettered and unverified of you know their background criminal history and whatnot and what they're you know uh you know i, I would say we should be more on a, on a canada model of uh, allowing people in here but um i would say progressives are kind of you know come as many people as they want and i would say also i think on the wall which a lot of Democrats, including progressive Democrats, freaked out about. What is happening at the southern border now, I think shows actually that the wall was a good idea and a partial solution for some immigration problems, but also getting a policy that makes sense. No progressive, it seems to me, has fully come around on immigration to sanity. Right. And let me go to calls. 202-521-1320. Ingrid in D.C. Hey there, what's on your mind? Well, you mentioned uh, Garland Nixon. He is going to be speaking on October 8th at our D.C. Action for Assange rally at the Department of Justice. And this is turning out to be quite a large event with a lot of speakers and also people who can't come in person doing one-minute audio or videos that can be uh, played at the, at the rally. But I wish that if you know somebody who might be on, on the right-ish and would like to speak, to connect them with me, because uh, this is not a left-right issue. This is a, a freedom of speech issue, and there definitely are people on the right who support Assange. I've heard, um, I can't swear to this, but that Cassandra Fairbanks, who is a big supporter of Julian, uh, declined to participate because she was afraid she wouldn't get a good reception from the progressive lefties who are are, going to be the audience. But be that as it it may, if if anyone on the right is, is brave, please come forward. That's disappointing. I'll I'll just mock Cassandra for one second, because Cassandra, oh, poor you. You, They might say bad things about you. Boo-hoo. Julian Assange is in Belmarsh prison. Get real. Come on. It's not about you. So I don't think that was too far out of line. Do you, Ingrid? No, I don't. But as I say, I can't, you know, this is a rumor I heard, so I can't confirm it. So, so Cassandra, you know, come on down if if you want to. We will welcome you. I will certainly. Right, and, and I'll I'll give you credit for it. But just because you might not get a good reception, then modify the way you speak or something like that. I've never, you know, and you might get a better reception than you think. But uh, is anyone from Ron Paul's organization going to be there? Ingrid? I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, one of the things about this rally is, like, what is a rally? It's it's true to motivate your base to actually do something. And it's not clear what people are going to do. John Kiriakou thinks we should, you know, fill the courtroom if it comes to that and have people in the street. I'm of the opinion that's too little too late and that we should be taking our... Uh, campaign into Virginia, into the area from which the jury pool will come, and doing that the sooner the sooner the better. And as as we all know, Virginia is not a blue state. There's 
there's a role for people on the right in this campaign. No, I think so, too. I'm not sure where Daniel McAdams is, but I think someone from Ron Paul's, I'm, I'm using term organization broadly, uh, someone from Ron Paul or Rand Paul, have, has anyone invited people like Thomas Massey or Sarah Palin? I don't know, but I'll look into it. Because I think a respectful invite to Sarah Palin would be in in order. Does it make sense? Sure, yes. And that would be a very big name. But thanks, Ingrid. Keep us up to date. And I think having gone on there will be great. So 202-521-1320. Now, it's out time. He almost needs his own theme song, Rod. Do you agree? We need an Owl Killer theme song? Yeah, uh, for sure. Something like uh, that'd be a the Marvel, a Marvel thing or something. Yeah, something like that. The Punisher, so, like the Punisher theme. Right. So now, woohoo! That was not it, but I liked doing that. It was fun. Owl Killer, you're on. As long as I get to pick the song, and I have a long list, I'll make sure I get you the clean versions uh, beforehand. Um, Thanks. No, no sticker. Anybody. Yeah. Did you hear Trump's stupid statement on Sean Hannity that the president can declassify things by thinking it? No. Who is it? it yes. He said it uh, last, or it aired last night. And he said that, well, okay, we, we all know that it's a game that they're playing with this classified document stuff. Okay. The president can declassify whatever they want, but. He boxes himself in, and he boxed himself in with the Russia thing by saying, oh, that's why I got rid of James Comey. We all know why you got rid of him. We all know there was no Russia collusion. But his braggadocia, he gets himself in these situations, and there, it's all, I mean, it's on top of drudge. It's all over all the liberal media, um, and all the walls are closing, and that's the new thing. And then you see uh, Jared Kushner is you see what he's saying about um, Ron DeSantis uh, moving the migrants up to um, uh, sending them to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like the, the, they don't know what planet they're on. And I, 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 he, well, I didn't see that, actually. What did Jared Kushner say about that? Oh, that he says that they're, the uh, illegal immigrants are being used as uh, pawns. Which, in a sense, they are, but I mean, it is it is showing the hypocrisy that you know it's okay for. I mean, you you heard the mayor in D.C. say that they're not a border town; they don't have the infrastructure for it. So, I mean, it's basically saying like Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and you know, California. California's okay with it, but the other three states are not. That they're let me say three things about that while we're on an owl color. First off. Susan Pye's appearance the other day actually convinced me of a couple of things. One's clearly true. It is not accurate to say that the people are illegal immigrants. They're people who are seeking asylum. And that is a different status. So they are not in the country illegally. They're awaiting an asylum hearing. Now, again, I think a lot of those are invalid claims, but that's the system we've had. So first off, I've stopped calling them illegal immigrants because they're not just random people who came across the border. 
there are people waiting for asylum hearings. Does that make sense, Al Keller? Uh, maybe on the legality uh, side of it, but they did come here illegally. So they came illegally, and then they filed. No, no. Where, where do they come illegally? They stopped at the border, and they made a, a statement asking for asylum. That is not illegal. There's nothing illegal about that. Are you sure they didn't just get caught and say, okay, I'm here for asylum? Yeah, because uh, yeah, uh, you wouldn't do that. Okay, well. But e either, and it depends if they were caught on the Mexico side or American side. But I have no reason to believe that Susan Pye is wrong. And that to a lot of people would be the distinction without a difference. But that's point one. Point two, I think DeSantis may be in legal trouble if he gave people things in writing, a brochure that made promises, depending on what they said. I think, the, you know, what I would have said if I were his lawyer is don't give anybody anything in writing. Does that make sense, Howell Killer? It, it, make, it makes sense in, in, the, uh, in the hypocrisy that this country has turned into because they, may, they give them brochures, they give them, um, they, they, tell them they, they tell them where to go, what cities to go to, they give them credit cards. So what? So what, I mean, uh, sure. I don't. I don't know brochures you're talking about, and I have to see one. And if someone can produce one, I think you could point out hypocrisy. But my guess is the DeSantis team, in organizing this prank, uh, I'll call it a stunt, whatever, may have done it badly. They may have let themselves in for legal trouble by making promises and brochures. And the third thing I want to say on this is that uh, I, I just had it. I'm never remembering now. But uh, but there was one other point, legality, the paperwork. And, oh, I'll say this, too. I am not a Trump supporter now, but I've talked about DeSantis. But DeSantis did screw this up and did do something to get himself in legal trouble. I think it might show that he's not the person to take on the Democrats. Because if you're going to take on the Democrats and whine that you're not being treated fairly, let me tell any Republican who wins office, here's a clue. You're not going to be treated fairly. You're not. So you have to figure out a way to deal with that. You're not going to be treated fairly by the media or by the Democrats. They're hypocrites and they're liars. So how do you deal with that? Does that make sense, Al Keller? Uh, yes. Uh, one other uh, point I wanted to touch on real quick was um, what Brave had brought up. He asked for my opinion on um, how this war was really to crash the Western economies. I'm talking about the Ukraine war. And yeah. I, I, I do definitely, so the thing, China and Russia, they're not really worried about, that, you know, that's why a country like China doesn't care about running its debt up, because their play is when all the cards settle, they will be the manufacturing house, and they will be, you know, with the, the, the One Belt, One Road initiative, who wouldn't want to do business with them? And if they're not telling you what to do, that that is a in I could see it being offered as a uh, a yuan or a digital yuan being offered as a um, a stability uh, 
a, a new stable um, system, and they're already making anything, everything anyway. Same thing. With, Russia keeps their debt very low, but you know they have they have the natural resources. Nobody talks about the gold and the precious gems that they have, also that they do not put on the market. Um, but no, I, I also. But on the on the west side as well, they need a. They no matter what you, you can talk great reset, new world order. We can talk that. We and we know that's what they're moving towards. But they need a reason for why we can't pay the bills. And Russia gives them the reason. The war gives them the reason why, oh, you know, our economic system crashed because uh, Western Europe couldn't get the gas that they needed. And somehow uh, we're sitting on, we're literally sitting on uh, black gold in this country. And somehow we couldn't get our own, we couldn't, something happened, we couldn't get our own oil. But no, I, I definitely see them trying to deliberately crash the, um, the Western economies. And cause you could, you couldn't do what we've done in the last few years from the lockdowns to now with, with any other intention, but to uh, crash the economies. And we know that not, it's an IOU that can never be paid, but that this whole war does set up the excuse for why they have to bring in the new system. And of course it's going to be a digital, it's going to be a digital coin that they can surveil. And it may not start out initially, um, where they, you can't use it on certain things, but you know that is where it will go, where if you're not a good boy or girl, your money is not going to, you're not going to be able to, it's, it's going to be this, it's going to be the China, uh, social credit score on steroids because we're more degenerate. You won't be able to go on certain, you, you won't be able to pay for internet service that if you log in to watch, you know, say your show or Alex Jones or a uh, Tucker Carlson, like that, that's where it will go. It's going to give them more control than they've ever had, um, ever in, the, in human history. And uh, Yuval Noah Harari, he is very adamant. He is the one that is obsessed with him and Klaus Schwab with merging the uh, digital and the to your genetic sequence. That that is, I've heard him. I've heard him in probably a hundred short clips uh, mentioning specifically that. Well, what does Klaus Schwab say? It's a, a merger of your digital. Your biological, and, uh, and there was another another piece that they're going to merge all three identities in this new fourth in, industrial revolution. So, of course, that's where they're going with it. Well, the, it, it, let's, they're not there yet. And so the thing I'd say to people, great call, Al Killer, as usual, but great call, but don't act like it's they're there yet. Don't act out of fear. As I say, I really have... I was sorry if I offended you, Cassandra, if you were even listening. But I don't couch when people like Julian Assange are facing what they're facing. If the worst thing is people might make fun of you. I assume, Cassandra, you're used to being made fun of. I've seen the way people talk to you. And it's vicious. And they pull out all kinds of stuff that's inappropriate. Tough. Don't let the bastards get you down. That's one way to put it. So let's take a, take a short break, and when we come back, we're talking to the great writer and author, Tom Nichols, here on Backstory.
are back in the backstory and on the radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joined now by a great friend of the show, author and writer, Tom Nichols. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hi, Lee. How's it going? I'm fine, thanks. Pretty good. Now, so allow me to rant about Fetterman for one second as we get into this. At first, I did not like the stuff I was hearing about what the Oz campaign was saying about him having had a stroke. And I feel strongly about this because as a person who's had a stroke, I really get pissed off when people try to tell me and they they know nothing. They're strangers. And I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, here's why you had a stroke. And they'll say, you got vax or they'll something. So does that make sense, Tom, why I wouldn't like to be told why if I had a stroke? Yes, that makes sense. That's a that's a private matter. Uh, depending on the person, it can be embarrassing, and society can be very cruel. You know, to like elderly people who have some kind of an illness or disability, quote unquote. Um, there are people who tend to look at you as as three fourths of a person or three fourths of what you once were. So that that's. Uh, society can be very cruel, yes. And also because I've had neurologists look at my MRIs, and they've shown me pictures, and I know why I have stroke. My veins are very thin. The veins that go into the center of my brain are very thin. And eating a vegetable would not have affected that. And depending on... So when the Dr. S campaign said... If he'd eaten a vegetable, he wouldn't have had a stroke. That bugged me as someone who has a stroke. Right. That really bugged me. Right. It was inappropriate and medically fallacious. But now, I, and I say this as someone who's had a stroke and obviously still is affected by it somewhat. But I've seen some footage now of Fetterman speaking, and that dude's got it worse than me. I will say he makes me feel good about myself. I may talk a little, my words are slurred, and, but I do not lose my place in the middle of sentences. And I do not say, you know, the, the kind of things I've seen some, some, from Fetterman. So I'm not talking about why he had a stroke, but I'm saying it's clear to me that he's still affected, I think, a little too much. I would be worried about electing Fetterman. On the basis of that. Now, Tom, you've seen him speak more than I have. Am I out of line or am I mythologizing? Are you sitting here going, no, Lee, I hate to break it to you. You're kind of that bad. Well, what do you say, Tom? Uh, I I think you're on the money, as they say. Uh, I, I've watched several of his uh, speeches, and not only are there long pauses, which you never do, but there is a a salad word scramble that is confusing, too. And, of course, his supporters just act as if nothing is happening. And they do the same thing with Biden's uh, cognitive sort of gaps. They just smile and pretend it's not there. And it's an amazing thing that the left is doing. You just pretend it's not there. You give a hearty applause, and everything is okay. And it just amazes me. Um, I don't 
I don't even know what to say about it, but that's... Um, there are many problems with John Fetterman. Many, many, many problems. And um, I think if he were to be elected, he would turn Pennsylvania into a Philadelphia. Um, you know, and um, that's been said before, by the way. But, I mean, this is a man who said things like sanctuary cities make everyone safe. And um, I think back in October of 2020, he, he, he said that he wanted to empty prisons by over 30%. I mean, these were, these were his um, uh, goals. Not to mention his obsessive, weird uh, obsession with uh, weed, uh, legalization of weed, which is really bizarre. Um, especially since the science now concerning marijuana is, you know, uh, giving us these radical new facts that the THC in the ordinary weed joint is up to like 60 and 70 percent, um, as opposed to like 2 percent that it was back in the 60s. And the effects are um, disastrous on many people. So, so this man is like not only has a problem with speaking, which he cannot help, but his policies are bad. And um, so if his policies were good, I would be much more willing to overlook any gaps in his speaking style. But the man is, is trouble from A to Z. Um, yeah, and the speaking isn't my concern. My concern is this getting into cognitive problems for him. But switching gears and it's my concern about Biden. And my real concern is that they'll get somebody in and then that person is more controllable by his staff or advisors or whoever. Does that make sense, Tom? Yeah, yeah. They become they become couched in like a devotee love circle and they all protect them, they all hide the major flaws. They all pretend it's not there. It's it's like uh, reconstructive uh, personality surgery or something, and uh, and that's definitely what they do with Biden. And uh, well, I, and I think I'll make an analogy. I'm sure you'll you know the because you're a very literate person. But at the end of Roman Empire, we you had Claudius. So yeah, wonderful. Do you see? Do you, do you see why I'm making that analogy? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we all remember that that great masterpiece uh, PBS theater series. Um, yes, and uh, from the uh, the Robert Graves book. Um, you know, Claudius, like an idiot savant. You know, he had this uh, speaking disability, but um, but basically, um, he was able to work an empire. And but you know, also. I, you know, I don't remember everything about Claudius's life. Did he have a protective circle around him? Well, yeah, I, I believe, you know, it just shows when you get to the end of an empire, you're not picking the top people to run things. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. It does make sense. Um, and you also had people like Caligula, which would be more Hunter Biden. So, you know, the rules that you get at the end of an empire aren't the best people. And so Fetterman, I think you'll understand what I mean. I think Fetterman might be the person Pennsylvania deserves 
Now that sounds harsh, but oh, do you, do you know what I mean by that, Tom? But if they're stupid enough to vote for him, if they if they're that easily seduced into this, he's like he's like a fake everyman, uh, you know, a, a common person's hero. I mean, what he what he what he like really is is uh, I mean, he's a fraud, and he um, you know he's. So many things other than what people think he is. Um, I mean, you know, the the um, uh, the blue collar tough guy, and um, all of that. I mean, it, it's um, I, you know, his whole mo is to just get to a higher office and to seek as much media attention as he can for himself. Uh, he was at a September 11th abortion rally recently, obviously, and he unfurled a banner that said Fetterwoman. And, um, I saw that, yes. We made fun of him for that. Yeah, and, and as Ben Shapiro pointed out, it took him a while. Like he, he had to read the banner in order to remind himself that what it said. Um, so that could also have been part of uh, the after-stroke problem. I don't know. Shapiro seems to think so, but who knows? Um, but um, I mean, uh, you know, but uh, I'm. Is it, is it fair? Is it fair to call him a proletariat poser? And I got a similarization in there too. But is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could also call him a pretend uh, populist. I mean, he he's. He's all of that, um, um, you know. And then you you have all of these these photos of these blue collar looking people in these bars in Western Pennsylvania drinking beers and toasting him. And I'm just I'm amazed. Like just a few short years ago, these were the same people who who considered Philadelphia some scandalous left wing city. And now they're all singing blue tunes with Fetterman. It's uh, it's like everybody has drunk some kind of a flavor aid here, and not able to see the truth. Um, so, and I was kind of shocked that that he had the slight lead in the polls that he did, and uh, you know the excuse that oh Oz owns multiple mansions throughout the world. And because he made his fortune in the private sector, he is somehow unworthy of the post of senator. Um, whereas Fetterman, you know, who lived with his parents until he was 46, I mean, which is pretty creepy and pretty, pretty incredible, although managed to get a Harvard education. But let's face it, everybody who goes to Harvard turns out to be a left progressive. It's like a left progressive factory. Instead of people who all think alike now, um, but the 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 problem is, I think the Republican candidate, candidate Dr. Oz, is a bad candidate. I I think a better candidate would have been someone more relatable to to that same blue collar beer drinker you're talking about, and and you could have done that a su- successful person who came from someplace you know, steel country and built a business after the steel industry was decimated in that area would have been a better candidate. But you 
fight with the army we've got. The candidate we've got is Dr. Oz. But I, I do think that he was not the best possible candidate. Is that fair, Tom? Um, I tend to agree with that. Um, I, I mean, it, well, I, I wasn't crazy about Dr. Oz, as I think I said on your show before. When he came to Kensington and did a show about the homeless encampment here, I mean, I, I just got a, a strange vibe, and I just thought it was like self-interest and, uh, you know, part of his narcissistic, um, I don't know, uh, sort of a personality disorder that made him do that. But given the issues, and again, we're talking about issues here, not personality, it's like voting for Trump um, with his messy personality and his, his you know, tendency to do himself in with the things that he says, but his stand on the issues, when you just put them on paper and match them up with the Biden people. I mean, then it becomes no contest. And so when you look at Fetterman's position on any number of issues, I mean, he's extremely radical left. Um, but he's also wrong about the, um, the marijuana issue, but he's obsessed with this, like, marijuana issue. He, he flies a flag outside of his office at the state capitol in Harrisburg with, with the saying, I think, don't tread on weed or something. I mean, what kind of, what kind of man does this, adult man? Um, it, it, it just boggles my mind, as they say. Um, well, I think I think they think it's is a way to get the youth vote, but I don't see how it's going to be, uh, you know, a a big issue in Pennsylvania. Except for a lot of people, I guess the thing that may happen after some states legalize weed, what they do then is they let anyone who who is convicted on, on those charges released from prison. And he's, is he talking about that? Yes, I, I mean, that that I would agree with, but I don't believe in the promotion of weed because of the way that it's produced today. It's the new Oxycontin, and, um, you know, one out of 20 people who smoke it regularly end up with psychotic conditions. And, you know, some people, they they get what they call suicide ideation. And... Uh, and it's severely addictive, and uh, it's not like the old-style hippie weed, where it was from well, a plant. Well, I, I'll disagree that it's, it's not physically addictive. It's There's nothing in weed. The strongest weed is not physically addictive. Well, so. yeah, but it's, it, it's, it's uh, you know, made. Now, it's uh, processed, and... Um, you know, things like butane and propane and ethanol and carbon dioxide are are uh, put into it because it's pulverized in a tube or something. And then they run those chemicals through it, which kind of separates the THC from the rest of the plant. So the end product is a kind of a wax that can be as high as 70 to 80 percent THC. Now, this is, like, unheard of. Hippies never smoked, like, joints with the 70 to 80% THC contact. Um, no, there's, there's no doubt weed is stronger. And I would argue that's 
the the purpose. It's it, it, but it's almost to me like saying alcohol. You know, we have alcohol that's high proof and alcohol that's low proof. Right. And some people, you know, it's people know what they're getting. And I think in a, in a legal product market, some people are going to go for dabs or or the the stronger stuff, and some people won't. But it's a choice. And uh, yeah. like like at the liquor store. Yeah. It, it, it. It's just uh, it's a, it's unfortunate that that society is becoming so dumbed down. It's just one other thing to even dumb it down further. And you know when you have children smoking weed, uh, you know un, un, unlike alcohol, it's um, it's a little more accessible um, for underage folks and that sort of thing. Uh, plus, it's it, it's. You know, there's like still that uh, cancer thing, the uh, tobacco-like stuff. Um, you know, that's still a big risk. But anyway, I just think it's just odd for a candidate for the Senate to be so obsessed. I mean, he's been pushing Biden to sort of say something before Labor Day. That did not go over. But Biden is kind of not doing anything about it. I think he's smart that way. <laughs> Well, I think rescheduling it as a getting out of the class one drug category and rescheduling it would be a good political move. And I think a Republican shouldn't lead on that, actually, because it's miscategorized, in my opinion, as a drug. And the Supreme Court has said it needs to be done at a legislative level. But so a lot of people are urging Biden to do that because... Biden has no appeal to to young people aside from that. Yeah, yeah. Look at him. I know. I've never checked the polls. But they certainly applaud him when he says all the things they want him to say. Um, and that will probably vote for him. Um, at least the— Now, what's going on in the gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania, Tom? You know, not much. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't been following that. Um, I think that— the, the the Republican candidate is. Uh, I probably think that Shapiro will probably win. That's my that's my intuitive hunch. Um, I mean, all I read in the Philadelphia press are just horrible criticisms of the uh, Republican candidate, and you know because of the Trump Association, and um, there's just very little wiggle room there. Um, so, um, Shapiro will be another Governor Wolf. I mean, it's just uh, Shapiro and Wolf's clothing, as it were. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way that is going to happen, I think. Now, do you know much about the Republican Party in Pennsylvania? Like, who runs it? The organization? Because it seems to me that the Republicans have made a lot of bad moves over the years recently in Pennsylvania. And I would say, it, it it seems to me, I don't know anything about it, like a very weak establishment who's not willing to cultivate and run solid candidates that would run in many parts of the country and that I think would do well in Pennsylvania. So 
What's wrong with the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, Tom? Well, I think I think it's it's probably indicative of a larger problem, um, meaning that the people who get selected to run for office, going through that filter is so expensive and such a complicated dance of who you know and how much money you have that the wrong people all of the time wind up as candidates. I, I, I mean, this has been a problem for a long time. Um, I also think that you're right when uh, Pennsylvania Republicans seem to be not as sophisticated as Republicans elsewhere, and they do say the wrong things. Um, I think Republicans in Philadelphia are much, much better. Uh, they're more nationally focused. They're not. Um, but again, I don't. I don't know too much about the Republican Party statewide. Um, I mean, I am a Republican committee person for my tiny, tiny little little ward here in the um, River Wards area of the city. But I've only been like an official Republican for a, for about two years now. So, um, and I did it as a reaction to the tremendous one party only attitude that is everywhere in this city. Um, you know, one party rule, one way of thinking. Um, and that's very discouraging. Um, every newspaper you pick up, um, they have the same progressive ideas and, and almost. Um, now, now, Tom, if we waved the magic wand and you were magically in charge of the city, what would you do practically about someplace like Kensington. We were talking about that with Rod. I saw a video. Kensington is a very poor, dangerous, it's like an open-air drug market, right? So when you have that bad an area of the city, what would you do? I, I, I mean, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you do to Kensington, for instance, to improve that area? I think I, think I would form a committee of experts none of whom would be allowed to be Philadelphians. They would all be from, from out of the city or out of the state. And, and um, I would consult with them, and then I would have to do something to control the streets, to control the, the out-of-control Calcutta-like India-like atmosphere on the streets where people are just wandering around and bumping into lampposts and far worse than that. Um, I think that um, getting them into like a warehouse shelter of sorts, forcing them into into a shelter where they they are made to um, given some chances to get clean, but um, you know, taken care of, fed, showered, and everything. But the first plan has to be to get them off the street because it's like an occupying army. Uh, there are just blocks and blocks of the city um, where average citizens do not go because it's been taken over. And so the first thing would be to get them off the streets somehow in a humane way. Um, and it may uh, be some sort of a lockdown um, but again, I mean, this is a very delicate situation, personal civil liberties. 
But so it would just have to be worked out. But it cannot go on the way it's going on because it's just getting worse here. It's not getting better at all. Um, and it, it, you know, more now people are are actually living in cars all over neighborhoods like Fishtown and Port Richmond. You see three and two and three people in a car, and it's like a traveling motel. And they just park the car, and they go out and get their food, and and they camp outside, then they go in the car. So, so this way, the city can't complain of a tent city because it's in a car that somebody owns, uh, possibly. So um, this is a new phenomenon now cropping up. Uh, cropping up. Um, well, and I mentioned before when I talked about California, the new technology about 25 years, 30 years ago when I was in California and like maybe 40 years ago, I was like 19, I lived in my car because California is a very nice place to live in your car. But what I didn't have then was a cell phone. Cell phones make it possible to live in your car and watch TV and listen to music. Does it make sense, Tom? The technology, one of the downsides to this amazing technology is that it allows people to actually live in their car and have all the comforts of home. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, you know, the only thing you can't do is shower, but you can buy those uh, nifty little facial wipes at Dollar Tree and just indeed yes bath um, and get clean or go to the bathroom at a public place. But but you're right. Technology has sort of created helped create this change. Um, but that but. Um, but they don't stay in the car. You see what I mean? And like these are not. Of course, yeah. yeah these are drug addicted people who who do untoward things at some point when they when they need their so called medication or when they're acting out after they take it. So they you see them like walk around the cars or or they're doing somersaults or I, I mean it just goes on ad infinitum and so. Uh, so the card thing is always an encampment. Um, it but always you're you're right. If the cops knock on your window, it's a lot easier to move your car with your stuff in the trunk or whatever than is if you're in a tent and the cop knocks. You've got a lot of stuff, and moving that stuff, the car situation creates something that's harder for the police to contain because the cops aren't going to arrest the people. They're just going to say, move along, and they will, and they'll move two blocks, and that's it. it that's what's happening in Philly, Tom? Yes, it, it uh, reminds me of an old French quote, uh, the dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. So neighbors complain, cops come and knock on the door, but the, the car just moves to another street and start all over again. And... Um, there's not enough police power or police presence to take care of that. No one is going to chase a car forever, and there are too many of them. So, so the tipping point is, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, it, it's um, probably um, it's an ingenious move for like homeless people, I think. But um, I'm wondering why the neighbors here are so tolerant of it. Because I, you know, I used to see neighbors come out when 
let's say on a summer's night, there'd be one poor homeless guy sleeping on the grass beside Rite Aid, and you'd get this irate husband and father who would come out and say, you can't sleep here. What about my children? But they, but they don't say anything about these cars. Uh, it's just. And let me ask you about, we're almost out of time, Tom, but great parents as usual. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Let me ask what, what you think of the cops in Philly. Are they having trouble recruiting cops? Are they, do the cops seem involved? Or they seem, I've heard in New York that the cops are very not involved. They, the, the cops seem, their minds seem to be elsewhere. What are the cops like in Philly? Yes, Lee, their, their mind is definitely elsewhere, and they're not very involved. They're involved when they have to be. I mean, you hear sirens, and you see them from time to time, but there's not that same sense of a real police presence anymore. Um, you know, um, because, like, shoplifting is um, epidemic, and it's everywhere, you know, and um, so you're right. It's uh, like New York. It's uh, the police thing has taken a back seat. Yeah, and, and so I think it's a dangerous situation that's happening around the country, probably. So, Tom Nichols, great appearance. Thanks so much for our conversation, and thanks so much to the great Scott Ritter for updating us on what's going on with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Till tomorrow, I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. Backstory.